The many unintended Christian parallels in Disney Pixar's Onward include taking the narrow path, walking boldly in the spirit, possessing the gift of salvation, and mentoring others in spiritual growth. Are you just watching? Episode 104, Onward. Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And we're discussing another streaming movie since we're still locked in our homes. <laughs> Hopefully everybody's had a chance to see Onward. It's a movie that came out in the theaters right before uh, the whole world shut down. And they immediately rushed it to DVD and to streaming services. So it is available now. And I'm kind of glad they did because I'm not sure I would have watched it otherwise. Hmm. And uh, it's a good movie. I was really quite surprised how good it was. Yeah, it was, I was going to say standard Pixar fare because, you know, they traditionally put out really good movies, but I, I think it was actually better than standard Pixar fare because not only did this have really good production values, but it had a, a really strong moral family-centered message, which I really appreciated. Mm -hmm. I think you can always pick out a few little things that kind of parallel with Christian thought and Christian thinking, but this one just seemed really full of context, and, and maybe that's just, you know, the moral message, but there just seemed to me a lot of parallels. And as mm -hmm. I said in our intro, they I think most of them are unintended Christian parallels, but they mm -hmm. are still there, and it makes it uh, wonderful to talk about. I will mention the music. It was an original score done by Michael Dana and Jeff Dana, and believe it or not, they're brothers, which I thought was an interesting irony. Maybe a, a purposeful one to think about. <laughs> they're both accomplished film composers. They both have composed separately, but they seem to do their better work together. And it's the first time I've ever heard music by them. I looked at their filmographies and nothing else that they've done have been in my queue to watch. So I haven't ever heard them before. But I know that Michael Dana did the music for Life of Pi, which I have not seen. Ah, and I've seen you've it. You've seen it. Yeah. I think he won an Academy Award for it, didn't he? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't go that far in That's, my research. I... <laughs> <laughs> I know Life of Pi took home several Academy Awards. I, I'm fairly sure that the music was one of them. Yeah. Now, it's very interesting about this because when I watch the movie, the, the theme that they play the most for Ian sounds like a piece of music that I know from somewhere else. And so I always come out humming the tune, trying to figure out where I know it from. And it's not the same tune at all. But there's just enough of it there that it makes me think I know the tune. Have you ever heard that kind of thing before where it sounds just enough like something else? But <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it keeps throwing me off every time I hear Ian's theme. But the music is beautiful. It's very, it's kind of got a lot of air guitar, electric guitar kind of feel to it. So it, it kind of fits the teenage vibe that's going on. I mean, they're, yeah, that's going on in the movie and it, Fits. And I'll just play a little bit of it here so that we can hear what it sounds like.
the music. Uh, I think it fit the movie there. That is very interesting. When I looked up the soundtrack, almost all of the pieces were like a minute or less. There were only like four in the entire soundtrack that were over a minute. And that just like little snippets of music that showed like the transitions between things that were going on in the movie. It was really interesting. Yeah, they did a good job matching the the sense of the mute, you know, the sense of the music brings and the purpose of the music was fulfilled in, mm-hmm. in onward, uh, particularly through the characters, even though I was in high school, much more the Ian character. <laughs> um, I actually associate now more with uh, Barley, mm-hmm. the the boisterous and, and he had his own theme music, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. And, and uh, it fulfilled the ultimate purpose of music. <laughs> Now, we can't go too far in our initial impressions without talking about who played the brothers, because... Uh, was it anybody famous? I think so. I, I actually think we've discussed both of them in other, <laughs> other movie uh, reviews. I don't remember them. Um, <laughs> no, no. Well, let's swing in and, and talk about uh, one of them. Maybe one of them's a star, Lord. <laughs> well, I... The thing that struck me about it was I wasn't really, when I went in watching the movie, I wasn't really paying attention to the fact that Tom Holland played Ian. And it didn't even strike me until there were certain scenes in the movie where I really felt like I was seeing Peter Parker instead of seeing Ian Lightfoot. Mm. And I don't know whether the animate was because of Tom Holland or whether it was because the animators were playing off of his previous roles, but I really felt like I was seeing an awful lot of the awkward Peter Parker in his interactions mm-hmm. at school. Like the scene at the end of the movie, which I, I won't spoil it, but there's a scene at the end of the movie where he's kind of battered and broken and he's kind of limping a little. And it reminded me of Peter Parker at the end of <laughs> Far From Home. So it was just like, there were just like little snippets of the character that just suddenly went, ooh, this is Peter Parker. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know that it was necessarily his voice that made me think that. So I think the animators must have played off of his previous roles. That's the only way I can think of it. Yeah, I think a lot of that, though, is, you know, what any actor brings to the role. Yeah. It, uh, you know, you get you get Hugh Jackman playing a tough guy and and 90 percent of us are going to see elements of of Logan in it. And it, Tom Holland, he's drawing on his massive 22 <laughs> years of experience, <laughs> whatever he's got. <laughs> um, but uh, you mean but he, he was acting as he, a baby. You know, he does it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking as somebody who's raised three children, I can definitely tell you acting is a skill they're born with <laughs> and then lose a little as they grow up. Anybody who's seen Crocodile Tears can tell you that one. <laughs> Babies can cry on demand, unlike a lot of actors. <laughs> but seriously, uh, Tom Holland, he does he really does the bumbling teenager well. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I think I think that was a a big part of why they pulled him in. But you know the the voice the voice actor's performances really inform the development of the characters too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they they actually talked about that in the the bonus features that Holland and Pratt really gave so much to the characters that the the uh, the characters sort of evolved around their performances as the production went along, which was really cool. And I know a lot of animated features go that yeah. way. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, thinking back when we were talking about Aladdin and the original Aladdin, where Robin Williams pretty much informed mm-hmm. that entire animated yeah, character. Exactly. So that I would imagine the animators are are really work with what they're given by the the people that flesh out those characters, even if all they are voices. It, it they still mm-hmm. Ian himself really felt like Tom Holland. Uh, not I wouldn't say Barley looked as and was informed as much by Chris Pratt. I mean, but Tom Holland definitely. I I would argue that Tom Holland looks a lot like an awkward teenager. <laughs> not not that the awkward teenager looks a lot like Tom Holland. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> that was they were both marvelous performances though. Uh yeah, absolutely. Uh, they were really perfect for the role and Tom Holland and Chris Pratt do work really well together. Um, and from what I understand, you know, from watching interviews and, and such, both of those actors are really amiable people and work well with a lot of a lot of their co-stars. Mm-hmm. So perfect fits for these roles. Yeah. Some of it has to do with having the humility to be able to work with somebody instead of take take center stage. And I think both of them have. I I hope they do. Yeah, I think both of them seem to be pretty good at that. Yeah, it's. I hate it when you know a, an actor has a fall from grace or 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 something that just ruins my impression of them. It, there's a food guy, Alton Brown, who had a show in the in the '90s called Good Eats, and my family and I just loved Alton Brown. And he seemed like so, you know, personable and amiable and, you know, likable person. And then, uh, uh, you know, time goes on and and you hear about how he renounces his Christianity and divorces his wife and uh, steps away from uh, – steps away from his church, renounces uh, everything and – uh now you know my perception of him and his new appearances are are just so tainted it's like it's like a different it, my glasses are no longer rose colored they're sort of gothic black <laughs> yeah that's hard when we have people that we admire that are are knocked off pedestals but at the same time i think that's a good reminder to us not to admire people <laughs> not to exactly. not to put people on yeah, pedestals so <laughs> Yeah, it's they they are they should not be the ones making moral decisions for us. Yeah. Or medical for that matter. We'll probably end up talking about this a little bit more as we get into themes, but the only other impression I have initially is uh, obviously Disney is starting to make a lot of political commentary and this movie was fairly clean in that aspect, but there was one little one that I caught and I really caught it on the third viewing. So it wasn't so obnoxious that I Mm. noticed it right off the bat, but there is a scene where uh, a somewhat, and if I could say this butch female uh, police officer mentions her girlfriend and uh, in passing and, but it wasn't like blatantly in your face and you could almost think of her as a man. It, I don't know. I, I, she was played by a woman, so she was definitely supposed to be a woman, but I, she was animated in a very manly way. So one way or the other, it it's definitely introduces some social commentary that some Christians would be un- uncomfortable with, but 
overall, I think this movie was fairly clean of that. Not to be contrarian, <laughs> but I don't think we should use clean in that sense, but maybe free. Yeah. Because we have to remember that... These are on an unsaved production company. <laughs> there are people out there who fully and wholeheartedly believe that uh, that they are morally right in subscribing to anti-biblical viewpoint. Mm -hmm. So it is still a sinful position, uh, but it's not a clean versus dirty, you know, clean, dirty being sexual innu innuendo and, mm -hmm. and uh, foul language and everything. I, I don't think we should put it in that same category. Also, I knew about this particular comment going into my first viewing. So I was watching for ah. it. And uh, I actually went back over it. And upon deeper consideration, I think that making a stink about it might have worked against Christians who wanted to call it out because the, the use of the word girlfriend there uh, could every bit as easily have been a reference to, you know, like your girlfriends in high school and not my girlfriends in high school, but your girlfriends in high school in it as your friends who are girls and in your, and in your social circle, you know, I, I don't, or my, or I don't, I wouldn't have called them boyfriends in high school because well, no, you know, I was far too macho for I that. I don't think so because the context of her calling her girlfriend was talking about living with her daughter. And dealing with her daughter. It, so I it wasn't talking about living with her daughter, but how to treat her daughter, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was in the same context, though, of Colt and his relationship with Ian. Mm. So I think it was drawing. I mean, it wasn't like I said, it wasn't really in your face. And I missed it the first couple of times yeah. I watched the movie. So I don't think it yeah. was a, a real blatant reference, but it was definitely a, re a reference to a, a lesbian uh, relationship. I don't think that there was any way around that. I don't think it was definitely a relation, a lesbian relationship reference, but I think it was intentionally vague enough that it could be taken that way. Mm. And I think it was specifically for this type of conversation. And let's face it, it, it generates discussion like we're doing now. Yeah. And for folks who subscribe to that, again, anti-scriptural viewpoint, it lifts them up so they'll uh they'll latch onto it as hey there's a character like me or a character who's in my camp or uh, a character i can sympathize with easier so it's a win-win for disney yeah when they put stuff like that in there it's a win-win for disney as long as they well to be honest it's a win otherwise uh, every which way because if they scare off the christian audience the christian audience has already proven that they will go ahead and still subscribe to Disney and still watch Disney. We've never yeah. successfully boycotted Disney for any of those reasons. And so I I don't think Disney really cares about that demographic anymore because we've proven ourselves to be incapable of organizing against them. So there's <laughs> there's very little good children's content out there. And so, you know, people keep falling back on Disney. It it's amazing to me how many Christian families still make it a highlight to be able to go to Disney World, you know, to raise the money yeah. to take their kids to Disney World when there are other options. But no, it's got to be Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> There's a very specific line that Disney has to cross before Christians, more more than just evangelical Christians, mm -hmm. 
will raise up and say, don't do it. The problem is, is that line that changes in society are moving that line further and further away every Mm -hmm. time a new movie comes out that pushes the boundaries or pushes the envelope, you know? I just kind of just wish they would leave leave that stuff out of their movies entirely. I don't know that it Right. It didn't it didn't serve the it purpose. It didn't serve a purpose. It didn't serve yeah. the it didn't serve the story. Yeah. So I was uh my favorite Pixar movie, hands down, is Inside Out. That was a fun movie. Uh, it was one of the very few movies that I actually cried over <laughs> in the theater at. And uh and it really just it reached in and and grabbed your heart and and uh and held it for a couple beats uh, every couple of minutes because it the the writers really knew how to do that and, and I think this was the first Pixar movie in a while that has come close to the same thing the feeling was adventure and family and growing up and it really just felt wholesome and we haven't gotten a lot of those recently yeah I really did appreciate that. And it was definitely a guy's movie, but at the same time, it didn't turn off any women. At least I didn't feel like it Mm -hmm. turned off any women or girls, even though there wasn't a princess and there wasn't, you know, it wasn't really a girl-centric type of movie. I think it had a little bit for everybody in it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. There was originally a third person on the quest with them, uh, Jenny. Mm-hmm. A waitress that they picked up at the Manticore Manticore's Tavern, mm-hmm. who a diminutive girl who was uh, essentially your barbarian character, and uh, they ended up writing her out, which worked in their favor because it allowed them to develop the Manticore and mother storyline. Mm-hmm. But uh, if they had left her in, it it might have uh, actually fed to the demographic a little bit more. Um, but I think it also, to your previous comment, I thought I think it also probably would have went to the the whole social commentary part too, because they were going to make, you know, they made uh, Barley a bard and Ian the wizard, and they were going to make the fighter the girl. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, throwing the traditional stereotypes on the head, which isn't a bad thing, no. but it does open the door for more commentary. And it would have it would have destroyed the the brother relationship because the whole point of really of their quest was exactly. the bonding of the two brothers and adding a third person to that would have really thrown that whole thing off. It yeah it changes the entire dynamic the the whole story feel of the story. You know the only complaint I have about this is more a general complaint in in this vein of genre, and that's. In the world building, you know, magic makes way to science and they can't exist at the same time. And every time I see that, one, I think it's a tired old trope. And two, I can't help but to think how it fuels the discussion that you can't believe in God, an omnipotent creator who gave his only son to die for us on the cross and science and the Boson-Higgs particle and dark matter and the expanding universe, that they're somehow incompatible. And yes, there are elements of it that that are incompatible, where you, you have to say, okay, no, it's, I choose to believe that God knew what he was doing and 
when he said this in the Bible as opposed to this. But they are not wholesale. They are not matter and antimatter where if you get them together, they explode. <laughs> they, they power a warp reactor, you know. So I'm a little tired of that. And I really want to see a story where science has progressed apace and, you know, technology continues, but the technology has taken advantage of the existence of magic. Well, what was that famous quote? Oh, Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. Uh, no, was it Carl Sagan or Arthur C. Clarke? Um, Sufficiently advanced science is indistingu indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. But that was really the only complaint I had. And that kind of just goes hand in hand with the way they've set up the story because they've got yeah, all exactly. these mythological creatures living like they are humans. And I don't even remember even seeing an actual human in this entire thing. There, there are none. Yeah. They are all. Yeah, they actually, they mentioned that in the bonus features. Yeah. There are no humans in this right. world. It's, they're all mythological creatures interacting in a totally mythological world. And, but yet they're living in a very human world, you know, with mm -hmm. the cars and the yeah. electricity and, and all of that. So, which leads us right into our first theme, actually. Yeah. The opening scenes, the, the very first five minutes of, of the, the movie are, you know, the backstory, the history. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, I liked how they kept, showing people who were doing something that it, like uh, a wizard walks up and, and casts this, this spell that has this vaguely Latin sounding name, uh, vaguely sounding enough that, you know, it has something to do with casting fire, but it's actually to help a group of trolls who are cold and it lights their campfire for them. Mm -hmm. They kept showing how they were using magic to help each right. other. They were doing good with it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, I don't think we've really spoiled very much of it yet. But no. uh, as we continue on with our discussion, we will definitely spoil the movie. So it is worth seeing. If you haven't seen it yet, go watch it. Don't don't let us spoil it. It is a very good movie. It does have, I mean, for those Christians who might have problems with, you know, witchcraft or wizardry, sorcery, you know, that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. you may have some problems with this movie because of the the magic the emphasis on magic but i'm hoping that as we proceed with our discussion you will see some of the christian parallels that i thought were very obvious in this movie uh if you've got your critical thinking hat on when you watch it they really pop out at you so <laughs> i i would love for everybody to come and join us in our facebook group where we can discuss this because i don't think we're going to get to them all in this discussion we'd love to have uh, more people talking about it. And you can get to that at, by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community. That'll take you straight to our group. And we'd love to have you uh, come join us. This is Andrew Rappaport with Striving for Eternity Ministries. Are you cooped up at home? Are you just desiring to use your time wisely? Well, Justin Peters and I got together and realized that our calendars were cleared because of COVID-19. So we decided we would get together and do our Snatch Them From The Flames seminar, Home Edition. That's right, a free seminar, May 30th, 
from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to give you a free seminar that you can take at home. We're going to cover the topics of the sufficiency of Scripture, interpreting Scripture, discerning false teachers, identifying false teachers, and then a Q&A. Get all the details at strivingforeternity.org, and there you can go to the online events to register before May 30th. And we'll see you there online in your home. All right. So now our first theme, and really, and we were talking about this as we were planning our outline. We have specific themes in mind, but they all kind of merge together. So it might actually be kind of hard to like pinpoint one and then go to the next one, because I think we're, it's just going to turn into one long discussion as we just kind of slowly go from one to the other. Yeah. But our first one is doing things the easy way. And this is right off the bat when you when you join in the movie what we were just talking about with the you know the, that magic was like this integral part of people doing good for each other and then they decided that it it was too hard to master. And so people mm-hmm. were drawn to the easy way and electricity was just flipping a switch and you have light instead of having to cast this spell where you had to you know, have all of these uh, set things to work in order for the spell to work correctly. You had to be from your heart's fire and mm. all of this stuff. And it was difficult. So people went with the easy way. And they show this in, in multiple ways throughout the movie, like the the pixies are riding motorcycles. They have wings, but they don't use them. And there's a, a scene where uh, Barley is actually trying to explain to them that they don't fly because their ancestors quit using their wings. And if they just mm-hmm. exercise mm-hmm. their wings, they might be able to fly. And the manticore doesn't fly anymore. And she has giant wings, you know, that could easily fly. Yeah. And she makes a comment somewhere along the way that her wings just aren't, you know, good for that anymore. And yeah, she she said that she used to be able to fly, didn't didn't she? Well, you get the feeling that she's the same Manticore that she that it's not like a generations right. of Manticore. She's the Manticore, so her her yeah. past as an adventurer and a monster and all that, you know, she's changed since then. So you don't get the feeling like she's a descendant a descendant of the Manticore. She is the Manticore. So yeah, she did fly at one point. Good yeah. point. So then yeah. the Centaur is another one. Uh, which Colt Bronco is an absolutely <laughs> hilarious character because he drives around in a car and he's got a horse's body and he still don't quite figure out how he gets into his vehicle and sits in his vehicle, but he drives around in a car. And uh, there's a scene where he makes some comment about he doesn't need to run. He's got a vehicle for that. So Yeah, I'll just drive. Yeah. <laughs> So he um he he's lost his ability to run and that's what centaurs are made you know built to do is to run like horses you know and uh, and he mm-hmm. doesn't do it so yeah there, this entropy is revealed over and over again throughout the the viewing of the movie that things have just fallen to a level of people are not using what not just their own gifts but their own abilities you know what they are yeah they're best at they have allowed to atrophy to the point where it's just not usable anymore. They become complacent. Yeah, they've become very complacent. And I got to thinking about that from from a Christian standpoint. And I liken this to uh, what, you know, Paul said about that Christians are running a race. 
he drew the metaphor that the Christian walk is like running a race. And now I have never run a race. Well, I can't say I've never run a race. When I was a kid in gym class, I had to run races, but it's not something that mm. I've ever trained to do on voluntarily, like a marathon or anything like that. <laughs> I'm not a runner, but I do know because I am friends with runners that when you are going to go run a race, you have to prep. It takes commitment and training. It's not just something, oh, the day of, let's go run a marathon. You have to plan for it for like a year in uh, advance and, you know, getting yeah. your miles in every week and every day so that you're fit enough to be able to make it to the end of the race, let alone finish well. And that is, it's not something that you just uh, have the ability to do. You have to, to train yourself to do it. You have to be able to keep it up and stay committed and motivated. And and Paul likens the Christian walk to that. And so we don't atrophy in our Christian walk. We have to be constantly committed to it and motivated to work in it. And yeah. I, I can point a whole lot of fingers at myself on that because it's not, it's so easy to just sit back and go, yeah, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven the work's been done. I don't have to do anything. I didn't earn it. And I can just sit back and, and you know, look towards heaven. And it's so easy to do that because, you know, why should you have mm -hmm. to work when, when it's all said and done? <laughs> but if we're running a race, which is what Paul says we are doing, then that requires constant commitment and motivation to walk, to read our Bible, to be witnessing, to be doing all of the things that we should be doing as Christians and not just resting on our salvation so that those, yeah. those spiritual muscles don't atrophy. You know, when I was in the service, you never had gotten enough physical training. Mm. I mean, you, you never hit this point where you were at like the, the fifth of the month and you're like, Oh good. I've run, I've done all my steps for the month and <laughs> I am done because you, you had to constantly exercise, you know, the, the self-control and the self-discipline to stay in the physical fitness the physical shape that you were required to be able to do your job. And, and in the United States Army, that that requirement is significant, mm -hmm. particularly for our younger soldiers in the early 20s. They have the hardest uh, requirements because they have the most capable physical bodies. Right. My son now is – he was talking to us the other day. He ran nine miles in an exceptional amount of time and – so proud of him because running is always one of uh, my family's hardest things to do. And it just goes to show how much work he's got to be putting in on it. And that's the exact same thing that, that Paul is talking about. Mm -hmm. And he makes several allusions to running the race. Um, not even allusions. <laughs> speaks of it. References. Yeah. <laughs> and it actually comes up a couple places in, in scripture, but one, Specifically, that came to mind for us was 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating at the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So, you know, he, he speaks to the dedication of maintaining that level of fitness, both physical and moral and spiritual. It's not a sprint. It is a marathon in the most true sense. Mm -hmm. And the, the marathon will end when we stand before the throne and claim Christ as our Redeemer. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting that he says, lest he be disqualified. And that's part of being, I mean, how would you be disqualified from, from the race except for by straying from the path that mm. you should be on? And I, I was thinking uh, about the thing in James where it says that if you're a teacher, that you're held to a higher, you're, you're, high, you're more accountable uh, yeah. because you're a teacher. And that's in uh, James 3. And then that is, you know, what he's referring to is, is that you have, it's not just something that, that you do when it's convenient, you do it all the time. Because if you stop doing it, you could literally become mm -hmm. something that is dishonoring to God, and that would disqualify you from uh, the walk that you're supposed to be walking. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation, but. Right. It, but we see we see it in modern society all the, mm -hmm. every time a notable pastor falls it, you know they they make a mistake it, people jump it on it it drags their whole ministry down yeah yeah exactly which you know as a evangelical christian i look at it and go well duh <laughs> we're all sinners and we all struggle with this stuff but people who want to see christians as hypocrites will latch on to that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of damage that it does. And that's why we have to maintain self-control and discipline lest we be disqualified. Yeah. yeah it's it's uh, a little scary to think about, really, because I think, especially here in the West, we have Christianity so easy that yeah. the motivation to keep up is actually, I mean, it's like those of us who are struggling with our weight. Uh, it's hard to keep the diet up. It, it's hard to keep the exercise <laughs> yeah. up. It's not easy. It's hard. Mm -hmm. But if we want to see the end result of, you know, a fitter body or, you know, to get rid of, you know, whatever ailments come from being overweight or any of that stuff, it it requires motivation. It requires commitment. And and that's what, you know, this what happens when you don't keep those things up is you know, the, the failing of your yeah. health or whatever. And it's the same way spiritually. If you don't keep those muscles exercised and you don't uh, feed yourself on a, the correct diet, all of those things, you know, suffer spiritually as well as physically. So we can definitely see a, a clear metaphor there for that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the movie, Barley is the one who is, uh, as you mentioned, he's the one who was lecturing the Pixies, who in the movie are presented as a biker gang, <laughs> so <laughs> so it it's a a wonderful image of a a naive young man trying to tell bikers how to be manly, <laughs> how to be macho. But uh, Barley wholly embraces that entire idea of resisting the entropy mm -hmm. and the complacency, and and uh, 
I love how it manifests in pretty much everything he does. And, and that leads into the second theme that we were talking about. And second theme is so fuzzy, (laughs) (laughs) so fuzzy in this movie. When he and Ian decide that they need to, or rather when Barley decides and drags Ian along that they need to go get the Phoenix gem. Ian's like, well, the highway leads right up to it. And Barley's like, no, 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 that's not a quest. And you could almost say, take out the word quest and put in growth. Yeah. No, 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 that's not growth. Because that's really what it was. Bar- Barley saw something that their society as a whole had given up on was that they grew through the struggles that they faced. Yeah. It, it, he kept talking about his gut. His gut told him to take the the harder <laughs> way and the less clear way, the road of peril. And uh, mm. the quote you're looking for is he said that the clear path is never the right one. Yes, that's it. To me, that was when, when like the little uh, critical thinking alarm bell kind of goes off. The clear path is never the right one. It's like, <laughs> oh, where have I heard that before? We've heard it in scripture. That's where. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because in Matthew seven thirteen through 14, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking here. He says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. That mm. is the words of wisdom that Jesus spoke to the people who were following him around going, you know, this guy is going to lead us to liberty from Rome. And mm. and it was the Christians, the ones who followed Christ, who ended up being, you know, tarred and burned in the in Nero's gardens and fed to lions in the Colosseum. And yeah. th- this was not the broad and easy path and that Christians today make it out to be, at least here in the West. Exactly. But... It was never intended to be. It was never intended to be, yeah. He, he he said many times, the world will hate you because of me. And and we're seeing that more and more. The world is hating us because of, of who we are as moral figures and ethical figures in the world. And that's why it's so important, you know, kind of leaning back into our previous theme, that we not do things the easy way so that we don't get disqualified because people are looking at us that's the reason why they hate us is because we are the moral and ethical voice in a culture that wants to have nothing to do with God. And if we take that easy way, yeah. we are leading the people who are watching us to believe that what we stand for is not real. Yeah, exactly. It really does hurt our uh, our witness. And, and not only does it hurt our witness in a public sense, but it hurts our growth in a private mm-hmm. sense. Um, you know, it, Christ spoke those words in Matthew at probably 40, 30 or 40 years before we started seeing the, the kind of widespread persecution that was around at the end of uh, John's yeah. life. And even before that, in the writing of James, it, it is clear that God knew 
but God, God warned us what we were signing up yeah. for. You know, uh, it's not like the recruiter who would sit in the recruiting office and say, oh, yeah, yeah, you get ice cream at every meal and <laughs> you can sleep in on, on weekends and, and all that. And then you get to basic training and you realize it ain't nothing like yeah. that. We are intended to grow through the trials that we face and, and we are told specifically to rejoice in them. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 say, Count it as joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfected and complete, lacking in nothing. Yeah, James is one of my favorite books. <laughs> James is my most uncomfortable favorite book. <laughs> yeah. I cannot read James without coming out the other end going, oh, I see way too much of calling me out in there. Yeah. You know, James is like the old aunt at the family reunion who has no filter yeah. and and just says things like they are. <laughs> yeah. And that's what we get. And it, it's all true. Every single yeah. bit of it. Now, it, it's interesting because just – to reiterate on this one theme is that Ian, as we go through the, this quest in the movie, Ian, its focus is on the end result. He wants to spend the day with his dad. He needs the Phoenix gem in order to recast the spell. And if you've seen the trailer, you know this much because of the, you know, the half part, the bottom half mm -hmm. of their dad, and they don't have the top half. But he's focused on the end so much to the point that he is willing to choose whatever path gets him to the end the fastest. And he discovers about halfway through the movie when they have taken, they're quite a ways down the road of peril, the path of peril. Hmm. He discovers the Raven's Point, which was the one clue they had, did not refer to the mountain they were going to, but instead referred to statues of ravens pointing a, di a direction and they would have never found those ravens mm -hmm. if they had taken the freeway and they would have never ended up in the right place and so he discovers that his desire to just get to the end as quickly as possible had nearly sent them on a wild goose chase and they would have never found what they were looking for and so that that is kind of a good reminder to us that yes our focus is on christ and our end identity is as citizens in heaven, and that's where we're going to be in the long run. But we shouldn't be so focused on where we're going to end up that we lose track of the journey that we are taking to get there. And that is important, too, because it's the journey we're on as Christians in this world that is the duty that Christ left us with to go into all the world and make disciples. He didn't just say, sit back on your hands and you know, look towards heaven. That's the end result. That's where we are going. When he left, he yeah. said, I go to prepare a place for you. And until I come again, go ye and make disciples of the world. So we have a task in mm -hmm. front of us. We don't concentrate on where we're going to end up. We concentrate on the task that is in front of us, the, the job that we were left to do. Yeah, it's that journey that that informs who we are to become. Right. Which kind of leads us to our next thing. <laughs> exactly. That there's that fuzzy line yeah, there's again. That fuzzy line again. <laughs> so introducing our next theme, which I've entitled The Quest of Becoming Who You're Meant to Be. 
And we see Ian at the beginning as we were talking in our initial reactions about the awkward teenager that he he is. And he's going to school on his birthday with this thought that he's going to become the new you because his mom had told him since it was his birthday, it was his time to do something new and become the new him. And so the things he's always wanted to be were bold and fearless and willing to take you know, chances and stuff. And that's just not who he is. And so his attempts to be bold and confident fall apart really quick because he's doing them. (laughs) Comically so. Comically so. Yes. It's interesting because he goes in with the thought, I am going to be this way instead of I'm going to learn to be this way. It was like he was trying to put on a persona that wasn't him. And, And so he was doing it in his own strength without the necessary foundation to be those things. He was just trying to put them on kind of artificially. And it made me think as I was watching it that that this is kind of what people are as spiritual beings without Christ. You know, they're trying to live a good life without God. You always mm-hmm. hear people talk about, well, you know, I'm I'm good enough. I do you ask people what if if they believe in heaven and they'll say, yeah. And then you ask them, well, why do you think if you would get into heaven? I mean, what would be your response if you were asked, why should I let you into heaven? And I've been mostly. Yeah, good. that's a lot of the a lot of that response is, you know, I, I've been I've lived a pretty good life. You know, I I did kind mm-hmm. things to people and I give, I to, give charity. to charity and they everybody's yeah. relying on their own deeds to get them into heaven. And we know from reading scripture, it's in multiple places that we are not good enough. There is no, no one good but God. And, and our own strength, we can't, we cannot get to heaven. And, and that's what I kind of feel like Ian is portraying at the beginning of the movie is that he is not, he's trying to put on a persona that he is not. And, and it's, and he's failing at it. And that's what the unsaved do, because they're trying Mm -hmm. to be uh, moral beings without the correct underpinnings for that. And so he goes on this quest and in going on this quest, he, he becomes the person that he's tried, that he wanted to be at the beginning without the effort because it's, it's almost gifted to him. You see it start when he finds out that he has the gift of magic and he, and he mm-hmm. picks up the, the staff. And he's forced to learn how to use that gift. But it wasn't something that he did to get it. He didn't get that gift through any effort on his own. It was given to him. In fact, it's actually uh, referred to as being a gift. And and so from that standpoint on, he is he is on a quest to become who he is meant to be. And he becomes bold. He, he steps out in faith. You see him learn to take advice, to make decisions, and in the end to make sacrifices too. And that is right. a completely different character than he started out being. And it, and it was because he went on this quest. Yeah. There's, there's actually a, a spell that he has to learn at the drawbridge scene. Oh yeah. The bridge of faith spell, which I thought was, uh, the bridge a, of trust, a, you know, a, a little, <laughs> Judge of Trash, yeah. thank you. Uh, a little overdone in, in you know, storytelling, but still particularly pertinent to Ian's growth as a character where he had to understand that, you know, not everything was as he sees it. Yeah. And by the end, he is using that exact same spell to 
terrific effect yeah. without hesitation. So you really get to see his his development through those uses and then the culmination in the final scene. And what's interesting about that spell, I think that's probably one of the most pivotal scenes in the movie, is that it, to begin with, he's not really trusting the spell. He's trusting his brother. And I don't yeah. think that he really realizes how much faith he's putting in his brother, but his brother put the rope around his waist and said, hey, if you fall, I'm going to catch you. <laughs> and so he's got this faith, you know, you've still got the rope, right? You know, and, and Parley's sitting there holding <laughs> all of the rope in his hand saying, yeah, I still got the rope. <laughs> mm hmm. But that is, I think, the scene where he, he makes the most growth because he had to step out in faith. And initially his faith is in his brother and then his faith is in the spell. And and I think that that comes to where we are as Christians. Some of us had to step out in faith, believing on somebody else other than Christ, because it was kind of like this being led to the Lord by somebody. And you have to have that that trust in that person who leads you to the Lord to take that step of faith to trust in God. And that was kind of, to me, a picture of that, that he trusted his brother enough to make that step of faith. Mm -hmm. That really is sort of a picture of, of how people, a lot of people come to Christ, mm -hmm. um, witness through the faith of seeing the faith of right. others and putting, like you're saying, putting their faith in the faith that they're witnessing. Um, and that does grow into uh, a proper faith yeah. in many cases. So this one was a little harder for me to pull scripture together for, but I think we found a few anyway. Uh, one one quick reference that I thought was very interesting, because uh, we're talking about the power that the Spirit gives us, because that's what, you know, Ian is using the gift of magic. That's what changes him in the movie as the gift of magic. He didn't have it to begin with. And then once he got it, he had to learn how to use it. And it changed his, him it, as a character and made him more bold and more confident and all of those things. But for us, that is the gift of the spirit. And when I first started looking up some of these, you know, word phrases to try and find scripture to support this, one of the things that came up mm. was the story of Simon the Sorcerer in Acts 8. And it was just interesting to me because this is somebody who actually in real life was performing what was considered by the world then sorcery. And people turned to him for, you know, this kind of magic. And when he saw Paul actually gifting people with the spirit, and that there was actual power associated with that, that you could heal people and you could speak tongues and do all mm -hmm. of these things, he, he wanted to buy that power from them. And, you know, Paul said, you can't buy this. It's not something that comes with you know, comes for money. It's it's a commitment. It's it's a life choice. And it just reminded me of the fact that there is actual power that comes with the spirit that even a... Yeah. And I associate that Simon was probably some type of a magician in the way we would think of magicians nowadays, where it's all sleight of hand. And he had people who thought it was sorcery, but it wasn't real power. And he knew in his heart of hearts that what he was doing wasn't real power. And so he was... He, he was doing sleight of hand, and when he saw real power, he wanted that. You know, it's like, I want the real stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think as Christians nowadays, we tend to lose sight of the fact that there is real power that comes with the Spirit in us. And, you know, Paul didn't say, no, Simon, you can't have it, period. He said, you can't have it because your heart 
is in the wrong place. Right. So he made it clear to uh, maybe to us armchair quarterbacks reading it <laughs> 2,000 years later. Right. Uh, it made it clear that Simon could have come to Christ. He could have received the power of the Spirit, but was prevented from doing so simply because he sought that power for the wrong reasons. Right. So we, as we were talking earlier, it's actually one of the powers that the Spirit grants, and and it's one that we as Christians have available to us and, and we don't use. Uh, even in this modern day, we can draw on it, but we're almost conditioned not to, and that's the ability to be bold. Mm-hmm. There is so much of Christ that we should boast in. There is so much of the man and God that is special and unique. Uh, we should be screaming from the mountaintops, and, and we're not. But uh, one of the, the scriptures that uh, we pulled out was Acts 4.13. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John, they realized that they were uneducated and untrained men and were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus, that when people look at us, they should see that boldness. And in the movie, Barley has that boldness. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's not going around proselytizing, obviously. Yeah. Because let's face it, this is a Disney movie. Yeah. <laughs> but he has that surety of purpose that uh, hardiness that really just speaks to his utter belief and faith in his worldview, his outlook. And that's what we should have as Christians, too. Mm-hmm. For me, he brought to mind Colossians 3, 23 and 24, which I know I probably mentioned a half a dozen times or more on this podcast. Uh, but whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Yeah. And uh, if if we can get nothing else out of barley, which we can, but if we got nothing else out of barley, we should admire the surety of his purpose that he has and he brings to the story. And to see the confidence that it, it eventually brings about in Ian as well, because once he's finished this quest, you see him take step of faith that is just amazing where this whole thing was about him getting to meet his father. He was too young when his father died to even have mm-hmm. any memories of him. And all he wanted was to spend, he had this long list of things he wanted to do with his dad. And through the this entire quest, he discovers that he's done all those things with his brother. He doesn't need his dad and he doesn't know his dad and his dad is no longer important. And so he uses yeah. all the things he learned to sacrifice that time with his father so that Barley could be able to have that last final good memory with his father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Barley was dealing with regret over his relation. And and it was a – I mean, he was a child. He yeah. was like five or something, five or six when their father died. So his action was completely in in line with his maturity level. Uh, but Barley, now a 19-year-old or whatever, he painfully regretted it. Yeah. It was the vow he made that he would never fear anything again because he was afraid of seeing his father on his deathbed. 
And, yeah. and and that was the vow. He said, "I just swore right then and there, I'd never be afraid of anything ever again." And he just dis- and he displays that throughout the movie. He's fearless, mm-hmm. <laughs> like lecturing pixies. Yeah, but he wanted to have that final moment with his dad, and and it and he made light of it through the whole movie. You know, it's like I'm going to tell him about the van. I'm going to tell him, you know, you know, just really frivolous stuff that just really threw mm-hmm. Ian for a loop. It's like, is that your list? Is that what you want to see Dad for? But I think in the end, Ian realized that it was more important for Barley to have those few precious seconds or minutes with their father than it was for him to see a dad he didn't never really knew. And yeah. so he sacrificed that in order to to fight the dragon off so that Barley would have that time. And and I thought that that was just a, a beautiful way to close the story because he has become uh, bold and he has learned to take steps of faith and make decisions. And in the end, he made a sacrifice for his brother and his brother had already made sacrifices for him. So it was just kind of like returning the mm-hmm. the favor. Yeah, that was the self-discovery. That was a the culmination of the the journey of discovery for for Ian and it was really well done and yeah. onward well I, the next theme i had we've kind of really already dealt with it while talking about this theme but i did want to use some of the scripture from it cuz we talked about having the gift that Ian had the gift of magic and barley had said at one point that a person could only do magic if they have the gift and that's just kind of like we could only have salvation if we have the gift. God gave us that salvation. And so I just wanted to reiterate how it is that we get this gift. And, and it's uh, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, mm-hmm. not from works so that no one can boast. We don't get this by just, you know, being special people. We get this because God gave it to us. And we can boast in nothing. And that's Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And then also, this is Paul's admonition to Timothy, do not neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. So this is, as we were have been talking all along, this is a gift that, that you have to exercise. It's, a, it's something that you have to be motivated and committed to and, and use so that you don't uh, lose it. You don't want to neglect yeah. it. And onward, like, 99% of media out there, magic is just a metaphor for another aspect of, of true life. There aren't that many people in the world who actually subscribe to uh, the effectacious uh, existence of spells and whatnot. But we Christians know that there is no, no legitimate supernatural power out there apart from God the Father, right, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We definitely know there were in apostolic times and before. Right. We know there were demon possessions because it's documented. And it's not even just documented in scripture. (laughs) It's documented in in other historical documents. I think that we ignore the presence of the demonic at our own peril. Yeah. Uh, What's that quote? uh, The greatest deception that the devil has ever performed is to convince people he doesn't exist or something like that. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, very beginning of this episode, you, you mentioned that there are, there are people who might be turned off because this has a, a vaguely uh, Dungeons and Dragons like attitude atmosphere. Mm-hmm. 
I am a uh, a believer who plays Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, so, you know, I just want to point out that magic is a tool in storytelling to make a point. And as long as you're making a moral point, then I think it's okay. I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> Well, a couple little things that we do want to talk about before we close up this episode. I have a feeling we'll probably go a little long on this because these are important. We can't, <laughs> we can't not talk about yeah. them. Uh, the the biggest one, obviously, is the parental figure uh, that Barley is to Ian, and it is the major climax of the movie that Ian realizes that he doesn't need to see his father because he had a father growing up. He just had never, he was the annoying older brother who was always embarrassing him and doing things <laughs> that he didn't want. And after watching the movie several times, you, that revelation at the end of the movie taints what you, how you see Barley even from the beginning. Because yeah. when you first watch the movie, you're like, oh, Barley really is annoying. <laughs> it's all good. Out. <laughs> but then once you've seen Ian's climax at the end, you go back and watch the movie again and you see Barley mm -hmm. in a completely different light through the whole movie because you see how he is being that encouraging mentor that gets, uh, that helps Ian grow as a person and as a, as a, as a man and all the ways that it's important for him to grow and is doing it because of Barley, because he has Barley in his life. Yeah. And it's not like Barley is replacing his father because his his father was never in his life but barley is fulfilling a a role that he may not have even wanted but it needed to be filled and he stepped up mm -hmm. so this is hands down uh the major reveal and the major theme of onward was was how barley was the father figure and for me it brought forth uh two different trains of thoughts and first is that Ian and Barley's family uh, and their mother was a non-traditional family, not by choice. Mm -hmm. And they, they still make it. And uh, it really brought to mind for me how the scriptures continually call out the people who are in situations like that, where they are unable to, where they're in a non-traditional situation like uh, people who are, you know, far from home or have uh, their father or their provider has has died. And scripture calls them out many times as a special class that Christians should make an effort to care for. And, and that special class are those who are vulnerable. And it is it's a core element of, of our mission, of our mercies, that we do everything we can to care for the vulnerable. And there are dozens of scriptures in there. Uh, but the one I wanted to pull out was back in Exodus, when the law is first being given to the nation of Israel. Exodus 22, 21 through 24, it says, the, this is the Lord speaking here, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat a widow or a fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. And that just shows how vile an action it is to target these vulnerable classes 
and uh, how important it is that that we remember uh, our calling. The entire office of deacon in the church was established to care for the members of the body mm-hmm. who could not care for themselves and, and orphans and and widows specifically are called out in in acts so Ian and Barley's family is part of this and it it just shows how well they adjusted despite having such a a difficult road yeah uh, the other element that uh, that it called out and and I apologize I know we're running long was even though Ian didn't have a father it, Barley did step in and and that sort of spoke to me about uh, how we brothers and sisters in Christ are supposed to be caring for each other, where mm-hmm. we have a responsibility to all help look after our children and to, uh, you know, work nursery and and babysit so parents can get out and get a stress relief and everything like that. The, the family dynamic that you see and onward between Barley, Ian, and their mother is very similar to the family dynamic we should be seeing in the body of Christ, where people are, are stepping up to do what they may not have wanted to do, to have a responsibility to do, but they're doing it the best they can. And that's what we should be doing as a, a family in God. I agree with you on all of that. I also see additional level in that the position of mentor, which is mm-hmm. Barley, he, he is his biological brother, but he becomes the mentor that helps him through the quest and helps him yeah. uh, attain his p- a potential as a, you know, mage in, in the movie. But we are supposed to be spiritual mentors to those who are less mature spiritually. So mm-hmm. to even taking this beyond the biological needs of family into the spiritual needs of family and that we need to be the mentors who disciple and are help people understand what the gift of salvation means and how to utilize the spirit in their lives and and to be those spiritual mentors that people need to grow in the spirit. And I think that we're called through, throughout scripture to be yeah. doing that. I mean, that that's the whole point of discipleship when, when Jesus told us to go into all the yeah. world. And it wasn't to preach the gospel, it was to make disciples of all the world. And, exactly. And I think we preach the gospel, we get the gospel part done. But I think many of us are not very good at the, the discipleship part because the discipleship is, is the pouring into other people time and, and knowledge. And, and it's, it's, as we've said through this whole thing, it's not easy. There's, there's work involved. And so we t- typically sit back, oh, well, I, gave, I preached the gospel. They said the prayer, you know, but that's our responsibility doesn't end there. We have to be the mentor who, like, Barley is to Ian teaching him the magic. Barley didn't have the magic himself, but he knew all the spells and he taught Ian how to use all those spells. And so we have the obligation as Christians in the body of Christ to to be mentoring others as Mm -hmm. in as much as we have been gifted with the knowledge and and we're all at different levels of maturity. I may be able to mentor one of the teenagers in church while at the same time I'm being mentored by one of the older women in church because it's we're all at different levels of maturity and we can all exactly. mentor to some level someone else who is on a different level than we are. And and so I see that as a very uh, important thing because that's what we see Barley doing. 
like I said, there's just so much in this movie. Yeah. The the last thing, and and I think this is one of the things that makes Barley a mentor. Barley has read this book called The Quest of Yore, which he is, I guess, is like the gaming handbook for the people yeah. who want to be, you <laughs> it know, is. that like the historical games that they play. It is very clearly a uh, a parody of the Dungeons and Dragons Player's Guide. I'm just, yeah. I mean, e- even the picture on the cover is reminiscent <laughs> of it. But the way Barley treats it is very interesting because he, he there's one quote where Ian says, it's just a book for a game. And Barley says, everything in Quest of Yore is historically accurate, even the spells. And that's why we can use it as our, you know, guide on this mm. quest, you know. And it made me think it's like, as we are going through this quest of our spiritual lives, we have a guide that is above all other guides, and that is the Bible. And if we don't know it backwards and forwards, I mean, Barley never had to look up anything. He had this thing memorized. He knew what all the spells yeah. were. He, he didn't have to look anything up. It, he handed the book to Ian to look at, but he knew it all already. And, and I, I just felt like that was a good metaphor for how we should be as Christians imparting mm. the word of God. Excellent point. Uh, to other people, because that is our handbook in life and our spiritual quest. <laughs> and we should know it so well that we don't even have to like pick it up and, oh, what was that verse? And I do that all the time. So I'm pointing fingers yeah. at myself, you know, where was that verse? I got to look it up. But obviously, I think the Bible's a lot bigger than the quest of yours. There's a lot more to know. A little but- bit. Yeah, but we should be studying it daily. We should be knowing what it holds and where to find things in it so that when we have a question that can be answered with scripture, we can put our finger on that scripture. And I thought that was a really interesting metaphor as well. And I haven't exhausted the metaphors in this movie. (laughs) Oh, no kidding. (laughs) Analogies, metaphors, similes, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. So, of course, we have a website that you can go to and the show notes for this particular episode will be at are you just watching.com slash 104 and that and you can actually leave a comment there uh there it's if you just want to comment on the show notes you can do that but we would really love for you to come join us in our community which is are you just watching.com slash community and that is a facebook group it is private so uh, we keep it private on on purpose so that people that can come in there and it's a safe place to discuss without having your views mm-hmm. or thoughts or whatever spread all over the inter- internet. So it is a safe place to come and talk about the movie and we'd love to have you there. You can also call us. Our, our number is 513-818-2959 and leave us a voicemail. You can email us at feedback at are you just watching.com. Uh, and you can look up me on Twitter. I'm at tw- on Twitter at Eve Franklin. And I am on Twitter at Rencheple, R-E-N-C-H-E-P-L-E. And of course, we would love for you to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. We don't want you to miss a single episode. We only do one a month, so (laughs) it's not Mm. that onerous to subscribe to us. We're not going to like fill your (laughs) queue up with things to listen to. And we do want you to remember to check out our fellow Christian podcasters. We have been a member now for a little over a year of the Christian podcast community, and it's a growing community. They're constantly adding podcasts to it. And if you haven't checked out any of our fellow podcasters' podcasts, uh, we'd love for you to check them out at podcasts at strivingforeternity.org. And that is the place to go to get those. And there's 
a lot of different kinds of podcasts, most of them theological in some way. I think we're the probably the most fun in that we deal with movies. <laughs> <laughs> most of them are are uh, some type of theology discussions. There, and, many are deeper than ours. <laughs> yes, a lot of them are deeper than ours. We don't go that deep. <laughs> so we, we uh, would appreciate you checking those out. And one last thing, we did get us a new supporter. Yay! You can't see it, but I'm waving my hands. Yay! <laughs> yes, and we would love so much for all of you to support us, even if it's just a, a small financial gift that would help. We don't have a lot of expenses, but we do maintain a website. And, you know, sometimes watching the movies is not cheap either. So we... Mm. We, we do appreciate Especially when we have to subscribe. Yeah, to subscribe to streaming services and stuff. So David Lefton is our new subscriber, and he has joined uh, Craig Hardy, Peter Chapman, and Stephen Brown in their monthly support. Thank you all. Yes, thank you so much. If you go to Patreon, you'll see that we have levels of support, and a $10 support gets you a shout out for a charity of your choice, and David has chosen the Blood Water Mission. He says he supported them since 2006. They are were started by the band Jars of Clay and activist Jenna Lee Nardella, and they freely provide clean water and medical care to the most impoverished parts of the world, all in the name of Jesus. Yes. And the World Health Organization has said sub-Sahara sub Africa is will be the hardest hit during the COVID-19 outbreak, so please give to their special campaign, thebloodwater.org slash COVID-19. So that is a shout out to his organization. And we appreciate his support and hope that he'll be with us for a while. So he just recently discovered us, actually. He's a, a new listener as well as a new supporter. And we're happy to have him Welcome. on board. Yes. So, all right. I believe that's it. I thank you so much for listening. We really enjoy all of our supporters and all of our listeners, and we hope that you uh, continue to listen to us. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. Are You Just Watching is a member of the Christian Podcast Community. Find more interesting podcasts on theology and Christian living at podcast.strivingforeternity.org.